0: Well... As we've said, um, we are teaching this series in the midst of a worldwide viral pandemic. You talk about strange times. And despite the fact that we have seen a recent reduction in a few of the restrictions, our new normal still feels very inconvenient and and very invasive to us. Social distancing is still in force. So no gatherings and no touching and stay apart and and all kinds of things. And those are difficult restrictions for us to manage because we draw so much strength from our interactions with each other, especially when we're Christians, part of a church family. There's just a, a dimension of fellowship there that the world doesn't even understand. And so, right now, as the title of our series suggests, we feel separated quite. Scattered, just like these brothers and sisters from 2,000 years ago who were addressed by the apostle Peter when he said, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered. These believers are scattered throughout Asia Minor. They have no opportunity for the close fellowship that we normally would enjoy today let me remind you one more time that even with social distancing and all the rules and requirements and restrictions we're facing right now, we're probably still closer than these precious believers were in many ways because they lived in a world without the conveniences of modern travel and social media. They're basically connected, these little groups of believers, they're basically connected only by letters like this one from Peter that made their way from group to group across the many miles, bringing words of encouragement and instruction. As we pick up his letter tonight, and we jump right back into Peter's writing, uh, he's been telling us about being submitted with all respect, in three specific cases, being submitted with all respect. First of all, be submitted to your governmental leaders if you're a citizen. And that's why we've been doing what we've been doing here at CCC. We believe in being submitted to our governmental leaders as good citizens. And then secondly, he said, be submitted servants to your masters. We wouldn't say that because we don't have uh, servants or slaves anymore. But what we would say is, in the second case, if you're an employee, be submitted with all respect to your employer. Christians should be the best employees in our city. And then the third case is even more personal. It's in the home. Wives be submitted to your husband's. So he's given us a guiding principle. Be submitted with all respect, and he's applied it to uh, government, he's applied it to our employment, and he's applied it to our homes. Now he's going to kind of expand it even further, and he's going to explain the empowering principle behind that submission. And here's why. And you've already uh, noticed this and maybe said this, and you observed this last week. Sometimes those we're supposed to submit to They don't seem worthy of our respect. Or, even worse, sometimes those we're asked to submit to, they are the ones who have caused suffering in our lives. So let's pick up Peter's writing again and see what he has to say. This is chapter 3 and verse 8. Finally, be ye all, not just wives, not just employees, not just citizens, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise, blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. So Peter begins where he should begin. He begins not with the world or sinful society, he begins with the family of God. And he gives them instructions for relating to their brothers and sisters. Jesus and Paul both taught. That all the commandments can actually be summed up in one word, and that word is love—a vertical love for God. Yes, we know about that, but also a horizontal love for others in all of our relationships. Here's how Paul said it in Romans thirteen eight: "Owe no man anything but to love one another. Your obligation is love. For he that loveth, and uh, he that loveth another, hath fulfilled." the law. So as Peter writes, he says, finally, to sum it all up, brethren, if we have God's love in our hearts, here is how we should act toward each other in the church. He's addressing Christians. Here's what he says. He said, number one, you should be all of one mind. You should have unity. Now, unity does not mean uniformity. Unity actually means something much more powerful than everybody thinking the same and being the same. It means cooperation in the midst of our diversity. That is true unity. Peter said that uh, the saints are lively stones in God's spiritual house. He said that in chapter two, verse five. He didn't call us lively bricks, all the same size, all the same shape. He called us lively stones. We're all shaped differently. We will not all have the same opinions. I know that just absolutely shocks you. We will not all have the same preferences. Even about the work of God, we will not have the same opinions and preferences. But we are to have unity. Just as the members of your physical body are so different, the hand is not the foot, the ear is not the eye, your members are so different, and yet, if they have unity, they work together for the good of the body. So this is how we're supposed to submit to one another with all respect. We have unity. Another thing he says is having compassion. Uh, the, the, the word in the Greek there gives us our English word, sympathy. Sympathy. And the root of that word means to suffer with, to experience pain jointly, or to have a fellow feeling. When somebody else is hurting, you feel hurt. When someone else is joyful, you feel joy. A fellow feeling. That's what the word means. He says, have sympathy one for another. Have compassion one for another. You see, when we have compassion, we feel for someone. We're tender-hearted, toward their situation, but we don't just feel for them, we feel with someone. We hurt because they hurt. We rejoice because they rejoice. We feel sad because they feel sad. There is no room for judgment of somebody else when you have genuine compassion for them. You may know they're doing wrong, You may disagree with what they're doing or how they're living or what they've said. But when you have genuine compassion, there's no room to harshly judge that person because you have a fellow feeling for them. You you think, well, they're confused or they're away from God or they're in a season that's very difficult and you have that fellow feeling of sympathy and compassion for them. There's no room for judgment of others when you have that kind of feeling in the family of God. And he just jumps in here and he interjects. He said, oh yeah, and love as brethren. Peter interjects in the middle here, we're part of the same family. Now you remember the old saying, you can pick your friends, but you're stuck with your family. Well, (laughs) that's true. And really it's the same in the family of God. You're stuck with me. And I'm stuck with you and I couldn't be happier about that because we are brothers and sisters in God's big, beautiful family. Can you imagine that people that don't live in your house and people that aren't related to you and people that you only see a few times a week, can you imagine that you're missing them so badly right now because that's the family of God. They're not even your earthly, natural family. But you're stuck with us. We're one family, serving God together, going to heaven together. What a privilege. So Peter says, love as brethren, love like family. He said, Here, here's another thing that you'll notice about Christians who are submitted with all respect. He, he said, be pitiful. Now, we use that word in a different sense. Please don't be pitiful in that sense. When he says be pitiful, he means to have pity, Here's how I could define it for us. If sympathy is the feeling we should have toward one another, then pity is the action we should take one toward another. This is why we don't just pray for missionaries when they tell us they have a need. We give to missionaries when they tell us they have a need. This is why we don't just talk about people's situations. Oh, isn't that terrible? But we walk into their situations and we lend them a helping hand. Now, pity was not an admired virtue in the ancient Roman world. It was considered weak to have pity on someone. But the gospel entered into that ancient Roman world, that brutal empire, and changed it from the inside out. That was the power of the gospel then, and that's the power of the gospel now. He says then, be pitiful and be courteous. Now this term doesn't just mean being polite to each other in our actions. It actually means being friendly of mind toward each other in our attitudes. So a good substitute, a modern word, uh, be courteous. We think of just our manners, but here we're actually talking about fondness for each other. You can be uh, polite on the surface to somebody, but that's not what this is talking about. It's friendliness of mind. It's a fondness, a genuine affection for each other. So this courtesy in our actions is not just a shallow performance that we do in public while we grit our teeth, walk away, roll our eyes, and talk about the person. That wouldn't come close to meeting this requirement. No, this fondness is powerful. We're genuinely fond of each other, genuinely affectionate with each other. We assume the best about each other, never the worst. This genuine fondness means that we always put someone else ahead of ourselves. So that's beautiful. Peter's given us this list of of scriptures that tell us this is how we should act toward each other. This is how we should respect each other and interact in the family of God. But not everybody's in the church. And so not everyone is going to act that way toward us. So here's Peter's question for these people. How should you respond when you are not treated with respect and love by those in the world or even those in the church? When that happens, when somebody doesn't treat you with respect or love, it's so easy to lash out and push back and try to defend ourselves. But that's when we have to remember what Jesus said. He said in Matthew 5:44, "Love your enemies." Bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Now, there's another commandment that's going to take more than an hour or two to learn how to practice. You see, Peter sat right there when Jesus taught that principle in the Sermon on the, on the Mount, but Peter sure didn't live out that principle of loving his enemies. He didn't live that out perfectly. You remember Malchus' ear get cut off in the Garden of Gethsemane? That was Peter. He had a little bit of a tendency to let his temper and his mouth get ahead of his brain. He didn't live it out perfectly, just like we don't live it out perfectly. Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. We don't live that out perfectly. But this overriding principle of love, love for the brethren, and love even for our enemies, that should be our guiding principle, not just when we're in the church sanctuary, that should be our guiding principle in all areas of life. You see, these scattered saints that Peter is writing to, these people that are pouring over his letter, and they're, they're benefiting from his teaching and his instruction, He knows they're already experiencing some persecution simply because they're living for God and the world doesn't like it. But Peter warns them in this letter, we'll get to it next week, Peter warns them in this letter that official persecution, persecution from the Roman emperor is just around the corner. He said, I have some bad news for you. It's going to get worse before it gets better. So the principle that he's trying to teach them is don't decide how you're going to respond in the heat of the moment when somebody slaps you across the face or abuses you or misuses you or maligns you. Don't decide how you're going to respond in the heat of the moment when your emotions are inflamed. Make that decision far in advance before trouble comes. And so Peter says to them, he said, You got to be careful uh, how, how you act here. Don't render evil for evil. Don't render railing for railing, but contrarywise, blessing, knowing that you are thereunto called that ye should inherit a blessing. Peter says, Don't retaliate. Don't return evil for evil. Now, the devil, he returns evil for good, that's his job. Human beings usually return good for good and evil for evil. If somebody treats us well, we want to treat them well in return. If somebody um, treats us badly, we want to kind of lean in a little bit there and maybe return evil for evil. So the devil returns evil in the place of good. Human beings, it depends on what they receive. That's how they react. But Christians, we return good for evil. Our actions are opposite of the devil's action, and our actions go far beyond the average standard of the human race. In the Old Testament, the law said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That is the basis of justice in our legal system to this day. That's the basis. You return a penalty based on the penalty to the victim. But Christians don't operate based on justice. We operate based on mercy. Do you know why? Because that is the way that God dealt with us. If we had received justice, we would be forever without hope. But because we receive mercy, we have all the blessings of God in our lives. So we are taught in scripture, don't respond with a sense of justice, respond with a sense of mercy. That's the way Jesus dealt with you. So so he said, don't retaliate, evil for evil. And then he said, uh, don't give back railing for railing. In other words, don't, don't even respond with your words. It's one thing not to retaliate with our actions, but my goodness, it's another thing entirely when someone is pushing in against you and hurting you and harming you and causing you pain and suffering, it's another thing entirely not to respond with our words, especially in this day of social media. You may remember that last year we did a series on the book of Proverbs called Solomon Says. And in Proverbs, we find that the entire book is basically built around three uh, themes. Your money your morals, and your mouth. And in that series on Proverbs, I made the statement that, you know, the Bible has a lot to say about our tongue, but today the Bible would also have a lot to say about our thumb because without saying a word using your mouth, you can say harmful words by typing them into some kind of screen. And so we need to be very careful. Don't respond with railing for railing. Our carnal human nature. When we are hurt, we at least want to defend ourselves. We at least want to explain our position or justify our actions. At the very least, we want to get to tell our side of the story, to, to set the facts straight, or, or to question even the integrity of our attacker. But you remember when you feel those feelings, which are entirely natural, by the way. But we don't live natural lives only We live lives that are governed by the Spirit of God. So those feelings are natural. But when you feel those feelings, you remember that Jesus is our pattern. And 600 years before Jesus died on the cross, the prophet Isaiah said these words in 53.7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. He felt some pain. He was misused. He was abused. Yet he opened not his mouth. He's brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before our shearers is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. Two times in one verse, Jesus didn't open his mouth. You say, but that's Jesus. Yeah, that's the point. Jesus is our pattern. Jesus is the one we follow. Jesus is the one we seek to emulate. And Jesus is the one who gives us power to do exactly that. So, Pastor Raymond, if we're not supposed to retaliate with our actions, and if we're not even supposed to respond with our words when somebody hurts us or abuses us, comes against us, is an enemy to us, then what in the world should we do when our enemies persecute us and cause us to suffer? What should we do? Well, Peter says it. Contrarywise, Christians do something that is totally contrary to your human nature. When others attack us, here's what Christians do, we bless them. When others misunderstand and misrepresent and malign us, you know what we do? We bless them. When others hurt us, hurt our feelings, cause us suffering, do you know what Christians do? We bless them. That's what we do. You say, that's hard. Nothing in life that is beautiful and nothing in life that is eternal and nothing in life that is significant ever comes to us very easily. Well, pastor, okay, we're supposed to bless people. Well, what does blessing look like? In rendering that verse, the Amplified Bible expounds the term blessing this way. We bless people. Here's what the Amplified Bible adds. We pray for their welfare, happiness, and protection, and we truly pity and love them. Wow, that's not what we expect people to do for us. That's what we do for people who misuse us and abuse us. We pray for their welfare, happiness, and protection, and we are truly pitying and loving them. That's what it means to bless somebody. In other words, treat them like you would treat your brothers and sisters in the family of God. Because even though they're acting unkindly and unfairly toward you, you want to respond in such a way, through your words, through your actions, through your reactions, you want to respond to their unkindness and their unfairness in such a way that they will somehow, somewhere, some way. Someday be drawn to the family of God through you. So treat them as though they were part of the family of God now, so that someday they can actually be drawn to the family of God. The the Greek term used here for blessing, bless them, it means bountifulness. So when you bless somebody who's misused you, you bless somebody who's talked against you, you bless somebody that's hurt your feelings. You don't just respond with a begrudging, stingy attitude. Well, I have to do this and I'll do the minimum just so I can obey God's commandment. No, that's that's not a blessing. The word bless here means bountifulness. You return good for evil, but you don't just return a minimum of good. You return abundant good for their evil. What does blessing look like, pastor? Well, here's what I could say probably best. Just think about how God has blessed you. Was he stingy? Did he do it begrudgingly? If you think about how God has blessed you, you'll have a really good idea about what it looks like to bless somebody else who's misused you. You'll have a great idea how to respond. And and, and Peter says here that when you obey God's commandment and you bless others, you actually inherit a blessing yourself. It's amazing. It's not easy. It's not even common. But what a powerful biblical principle to return good for evil. In verse 10, Peter says, For he that will love life and see good days. You want to love your life? You want to see some great days? Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. So the question begs to be asked about you and your life, whoever you are and wherever you may be tonight. Do you endure your life? Do you try to escape your life? Maybe you've fallen into the habits and the addictions of drugs or alcohol or something else just to try to escape your life. You feel like you're just enduring it? Or do you really enjoy your life? Peter says, if you want to love life and if you want to see good days, here's what you do, and he lists it. I'll paraphrase. Here's what you do if you want to have a great life, you want to love your life, you want to see many good days in your life, here's what you do. Bite your tongue and zip your lip. That's pretty tough right off the bat. When you're tempted to defend yourself, bite your tongue and zip your lip. That's great advice. And then he says, go out of your way to avoid evil. Eschew evil, that's what it means. When you see evil coming, when temptation is trying to track you down, you go out of your way. You put some boundaries and fences in your life. If you want to love your life and if you want to have many good days, you go out of your way to avoid evil and do good to everyone you interact with. Just just try to bless everybody, do good. And finally, pursue peace, ensue it. Pursue peace in every situation. Now, if you live like that, you're gonna be living a much different life than most of your neighbors, maybe your extended family members, your friends, your coworkers. Because the world tells us that we need to defend ourselves and we need to stand up for our rights. But the Bible teaches us not to retaliate or respond when we're being unfairly treated or spoken about unkindly so it's counterintuitive to the way we think it's counterintuitive to everything we've ever been taught that's why peter says contrary wise it's contrary it's counterintuitive to everything that your human nature would normally do it goes against the grain of everything you prefer everything you've learned and it gives our enemies this is the hard part for us By responding with good for evil. That gives our enemies the opportunity to take advantage of us. And that's why we don't wanna do it. If they do evil to me, pastor, and I return good, what's to prevent them from doing evil again? And that's exactly why the world considers living like this weakness. But God's word teaches us that meekness is not weakness. When you refuse to defend yourselves, then God will step in and he will defend you. And let me tell you, God does a much better job of defending you and me than we could do for ourselves. I could quote you chapter and verse from my own life when people have done so many things that were unfair, even evil, underhanded, deceitful. And and I just refused to get down in the mud and play that game, To, to render insult for insult, to render accusation for accusation, to render untruth for untruth, to render hurt for hurt or evil for evil. And I have watched, and so many of you have as well, I have watched God undertake for me I remember one situation that dealt with a financial matter and uh, it cost me a lot of money because someone did something evil and underhanded, deceitful against me. And I refused to fight back. It didn't make sense and it was not easy. But you fast forward just a handful of years and what was taken from me came back in abundance and overflowing from the very same source. God will not be a debtor to you. If you hold your peace, like the old song says, and let the Lord fight your battles, victory will be yours. Peter says in verse 12, he explains why this works. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open unto their prayers, but the face of the Lord is turned against them which do evil. And who is he that will harm you? Literally, who is the person who could harm you if you're followers of that which is good? Who could hurt you if you obey God's word and his commandments? But and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, if you suffer for the good, if you suffer because you're living a Christian life and someone tries to take advantage or come against you, if you suffer for that, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Always remember, child of God, that God's eyes are watching over you, his ears are listening to your prayers, and his face is smiling at you, not frowning at you, his face is smiling at you. God loves his kids. Somebody said in jest, if God had a refrigerator, your pitcher would be on it. My mom and dad have children, grandchildren, and now great-grandchildren plastered over their refrigerator. They have bought so many plastic magnetic frames to put pictures in on that refrigerator. I, I think they could probably single-handedly keep Walmart's uh, pitcher department in place. They've bought all of those. You can hardly see the refrigerator. By the way, it's covered with pictures. And you walk into their kitchen and all you see when you look at the fridge is just this beautiful panorama of children and grandchildren and great grandchildren and friends. It's amazing. If God had a refrigerator, he'd have your picture on it. He wouldn't put the moment in your life when you failed Or when you were weeping or crying, God would put a moment, a candid moment, a casual moment. When in that day, in that hour, you just felt the joy of the Lord and you recognized the blessings of God. Those are the moments that you cherish, but those are also the moments that God cherishes. God's face is turned toward you. He's smiling at you. But God's face is turned away from those that do evil. So you don't have to be afraid of them. God is on your side. You don't have to be terrorized by them. God is smiling at you and he's not even looking at them. Now, when Peter says these words, he's quoting the statements all the way from verse 10 to verse 12. He's quoting them from Psalm chapter 34 and he's quoting it almost verbatim. Of course, one passage was translated from Hebrew into English. One passage was translated from Greek into English. But you can tell he's quoting the exact same thing. It's, it's amazing. Here, here it is. Psalm 34, verse 12. What man is he that desireth life and loveth many days that he may say good? Keep thy tongue. Here's what you do if you want to love life and have good days. Keep thy tongue from evil, thy lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. It's, it's identical to what Peter said. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. And this is amazing. And it would be profitable if you would take a suggestion... It would be profitable for you sometime to read Psalm 34 because it describes what God means when the scripture talks about good days. And that's why Peter references it. He's talking to people who are suffering, to people that have persecution, to people that have problems. That's who he's writing to. And he said, if you want to love life and if you want to see good days, here's what you do. And he quotes directly from Psalm 34 because Psalm 34 helps us understand what God means when the Bible talks about good days. Good days in Psalm 34 are not necessarily days free from problems because the psalmist wrote about fears in verse 4. He wrote about troubles in verse 6. He wrote about afflictions in verse 19. And he even talked about having a broken heart in verse 18. So a good day for a child of God is not a day when everything is easy. It's not a day when everything goes right. Oh, it's way better than that. A good day for a child of God is one in which we experience God's help, God's strength, and God's blessing in the middle of our problems and trials. Oh, we've still got the doctor's diagnosis to deal with. We've still got the bank statement or or the unemployment slip to deal with. We've still got stuff to deal with. But a good day for a child of God is when we look at all the things piled around us and in the middle of that, we experience God's help and his strength and his blessings. That's a good day. According to Psalm 34, a good day is a day in which we worship God despite all the issues. A good day is when we receive answers to prayer. A good day is when we taste the goodness of God. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. A good day is when we sense the nearness of God's presence. That's a good day. And David, when he wrote these words in the Psalm, in Psalm 34, he wasn't having a good day. His king was trying to kill him. His country had turned against him. He was actually in the land of the Philistines trying to find a place where he could be sheltered and protected. And it was not going well for David. But here's what David wrote on one of those painful days in his life. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Oh David, you must be in the middle of a service in the tabernacle. Oh no, I'm not. I'm actually not even in Israel. I've had to run for my life. It's a terrible day for me. But even on my terrible day, it's still a good day because on this day, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together because I sought the Lord and he heard me and he delivered me from all my fears. So the next time you think you're having a bad day, or the next time you think I hate life, maybe you should take a few minutes and just read Psalm 34 and discover that you're actually having a good day because you're serving God in the midst of your troubles and trials. Ultimately, who can harm you? If you live your life according to God's word, if you suffer for righteousness' sake, if you're persecuted for being a Christian, if people treat you unkindly and unfairly, don't be afraid, Peter says, and don't be troubled. Basically, Peter says, don't worry, be happy. The Bible said it first, before the song, the Bible said it. Romans chapter 8, Paul writes and he said, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? On the worst day of your life, when everything's against you, who can take you away from God's love? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? Sometimes we feel like uh, sheep being uh, taken to the slaughter. But in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. And here's his punchline. I'm persuaded. "...neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, not height, not depth, not any other creature, shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord." You want to have a good life and good days? You want to have that kind of life that you love? You're not enduring it. You're enjoying it. You think about all the great things that God has done for you. Paul said in the same chapter, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Now, Peter's going somewhere. He's telling us, even when you're mistreated, you return good for evil. Why? Why? Because when Jesus Christ is Lord of our lives, every crisis becomes an opportunity for witness. And that's why it's so important for us to follow God's principles. Even if we're under stress, even if our enemies are fighting against us. Because you never know who could end up being saved because they were watching you while you were in the middle of a trial. Verse 15, Peter continues. He said, here's what you do when enemies are coming against you and pressures are all around you. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. What do you do on those days when everything's against you? Here's what you do. On the inside, you just continue to sanctify the Lord God in your heart. You continue to obey Him. You continue to walk with Him. You continue to serve Him. And you continue to worship. You just do that in your heart. Even when you don't understand your situation. That's what you do on the inside. But on the outside, always be ready to give an answer. Always be ready to be a witness. You know, the Bible It doesn't tell us to share our faith. That's our expression, share your faith. The Bible doesn't tell us to share our faith. It tells us here and in other places to share our hope. What's the difference? Well, faith is what we believe, but hope is the benefits of what we believe. So share the hope with people because there's nothing like your personal testimony. When people ask you the reason for your hope, remember to give that answer with meekness and fear. Literally, Peter's saying, when you talk to other people about Jesus, always let them see humility in you and always let them see respect for them and for their opinion. And now Peter repeats something he said uh, earlier in this letter, in chapter 2, verse 12. He, he, He says, having a good conscience... That whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it's better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well doing than for evil doing. Peter said, You keep living with a good conscience before the world. Regardless of their reaction toward you, they may speak evil of you, but if you just continue, to live a consistent Christian life before them. Someday they will be ashamed of themselves for opposing you with harmful actions and hurtful accusations. But whatever you do, don't you get frustrated and retaliate against them because you remember that every day they're observing your attitudes, your conversations, your actions, and your reactions. It's a good testimony when you suffer for doing well, but it's not a good testimony when your life is inconsistent and you're suffering for doing wrong. In Colossians, Paul says basically the same thing in chapter four, verse five and six. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without, those that don't know the Lord yet, and redeem the time. Use every moment to be a witness. Use every moment to be kind to them. Use every moment to pray for them. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. Now, Peter, uh, in this chapter, uh, as we kind of start to uh, come to a close here, he reminds us of something. He's been talking about when we suffer, you still treat people with respect. When you suffer, when problems and enemies come against us, you still return good for evil. And he reminds us now that Jesus... Is our ultimate example when it comes to suffering, and that he paid, Jesus paid, the ultimate price for our salvation. In verse 18, he says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins. It was the just, Jesus, for the unjust, us, that he might bring us to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. And this is amazing. This is an intricate passage, and theologians have debated this for for decades. By which, by that spirit, the spirit that raised him from the dead, his powerful spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometimes were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. What in the world is that, Pastor? Well, I can explain it briefly. I'll give you the sense of it. Theologians debate over the details. But here's the gist of it. After the death of his body on the cross, Jesus went by the spirit into the prison house of the grave. And this is where he took the keys of hell and of death back from Satan, as Revelation 118 118 tells us. It's where he took those keys back. But it's also where he preached to some disobedient souls, obviously from the days of Noah, when wickedness was so rampant on the earth and God was so patient. Noah preached to those people all those years while he was building the ark. But in the end, after all that preaching, after God's word going forth and God being so patient, Only eight souls of Noah's day were saved from the flood. The world was so wicked that they wouldn't even listen to that preacher. And it's obvious that these spirits that are now in the prison house of death and the grave and hell, it's obvious that they must have had a lot to do with that wickedness and that rebellion and that not wanting to listen to the preacher. Now, Jesus didn't preach the gospel to them because they're already beyond hope. They're in the grave. They're in the realm of death and hell. He didn't preach the gospel to them, but he did preach to them. He proclaimed his victory over sin and death. And Peter tells us here that Noah and his family, eight souls were saved by water. The same water that drowned the wicked world was the very same water that lifted the ark up to safety during the flood. And Peter emphasizes one more time, God was long-suffering in dealing with that ancient sinful world. He gave everyone space to repent, but then suddenly judgment came, and there was no more time to enter the ark. The Bible declares that in this generation, God's judgment will happen again. But there is a way to escape. You must get inside the ark of salvation. Now Peter, the the first preacher of the church age, he declares something emphatically here. Just like Noah and his family were saved by water, watch what he says next, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Peter can't help himself. He was the one that first stood up on the day of Pentecost and said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. He's the one that talked about baptism on the opening day of church history. So when he gets talking about Noah and the flood and they were saved by water, he can't help himself. He said, it's the same thing. It's the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. He says, it's not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. It's not just taking a bath, but baptism is the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this Jesus who went into the grave and came out, he's now gone into heaven. He's on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. This is amazing. Peter says, even Baptism doth also now save us. He says, like Noah and his family, we are saved by water. You would never know this by looking at Christianity today. But baptism was absolutely essential in the preaching of the first century church. And in case you might mistake baptism for just some kind of public ceremony, Peter said, no, no, it's not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. It's not just an outward washing. No, it is the answer of a good conscience toward God. Baptism is an inward work of God's spirit that is accomplished when we obey by being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Peter teaches us here, just like the floodwaters saved Noah from the sinful world, the waters of baptism save us from the sinful world. So you be very careful. You beware of any preacher, any so-called Christian who invents some interpretation of the Bible and they come up with the conclusion, baptism is not essential. Baptism does not save us. That directly contradicts what the Bible plainly says. Whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Jesus made baptism part of his ministry. And Jesus made baptism part of our mission as the church. Baptism is not man's idea. It was God's idea. Baptism is not a denominational thing. Baptism is a Bible thing. Baptism was practiced universally in the early church because Jesus himself gave them the commandment. In his final words, before he left his disciples, Jesus was the one who told them, you go everywhere and you baptize everyone. Here's Mark's account. And Jesus said unto them, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Now, some people preach today, he that believeth and is saved shall be baptized. You know, you believe, you're now saved, so baptism is a good thing to do. That is not what Jesus said. That is not what the original church preached. Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. So we're ending this Bible study tonight, but please don't end the conviction that God's put on your heart if you've not been baptized yet in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Despite what any church or any denomination or any pastor may tell you today, the Bible lets us know universally and consistently, both Jesus Christ and the early church taught, you cannot be saved without being baptized. I encourage you. In fact, I do more than encourage you. I beseech you. If you've not been baptized in Jesus' name, you need to obey that commandment of Scripture. It's the first day of church history that we hear about it. Jesus gave Peter the keys to the kingdom and Peter unlocked the door by saying, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And if you will do what you can do, then God will do what only he can do and he will fill you with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And Bible study, we're ending tonight, but we are 24 seven when it comes to baptism. Baptism because we believe in helping anyone, anywhere, fulfill the great commission, fulfill the gospel, and fulfill their calling to be a child of God. So we stand ready to baptize you. You can contact us on our website, through our social media. We would be honored to help you obey the word of God. We'll continue Peter's letter next week, but right now I'd like to pray over you, and especially if you're living in a very difficult season of your life, and you feel like, I don't have many good days, I really want you to look around and see the blessings of God in your life because your days aren't so bad when Jesus is walking with you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you, God, for the privilege of teaching Bible study tonight and for the privilege of addressing these wonderful people. Lord Jesus, I ask that the word of God would penetrate deeply and that it would convict with great authority. I pray that the word that has been taught tonight from the pen of the Apostle Peter, one of your apostles, one of your disciples, he walked with you, Jesus. He knew these things firsthand. I pray that His words spoken through my uh, abilities, feeble as they are, I pray that the word would be like a nail that's driven in a sure place, and that it would bring conviction and challenge and change. Lord Jesus. Help us when people come against us to return good for evil and to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. God, use us to be your church this week, even in this strange, unsettling time that we're living through in this world. God, you can do it. We know you will. We give you praise tonight in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us for Bible study. Uh, We'll look forward to being with you in our online services this weekend. God bless you in Jesus' name.